episode 146 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 11th of October 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hello. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. So our country continues to slide into oblivion, but uh, let's distract ourselves with a bit of Linux news, shall we? The first is actually some good news, and that is the Fairphone 4 has been announced and has actually made its way into some reviewers' hands. We've not really given Fairphone too much coverage before, when we probably should have, because they produce these phones that are ethically sourced parts, and they make them repairable, and they support them in terms of software for a lot longer than most other companies, almost any other company, really. So I think we have to say hats off to them, even if there is a premium involved. There's a premium, but it doesn't appear to be a terrible price for what seems to have some fairly decent specs. I mean, it's a 5G phone, started with 6 gigs. You can get an 8 gig model as well. It has the very modern, ridiculous screen size of over 6.3 inches. I don't know how anybody holds these things, but fair enough. And, you know, the advantage of this is it's guaranteed for warranty for five years and they want the software to do the same thing and they're hoping to even extend it further if they're able to. It's quite an interesting prospect. I must admit, the framework laptops made me rethink my cynicism towards things like this um, because I I dismissed the framework when we initially talked about it and it's obviously, I was wrong. You know, it's obviously having great success and changing the way that people think about hardware in being not disposable and this you know Fairphone seem to be doing a similar thing i mean the yeah the five-year warranty is absolutely brilliant for support yeah although there's a review on the verge by john porter which is pretty positive except for the bit right at the end where he says it's a decent 200 euro phone that happens to be priced at 579 euros that's the price of sustainability so you are looking at nearly three times what you would normally pay but you're going to get probably more than three times the life out of it, aren't you? Yeah, and go buy that 200 euro phone and see how long the security updates you get for it last as well, where you'd be lucky if you get about six months, I'd imagine. And presumably a five-year warranty means that parts will be available for at least five years. So I would imagine the most likely thing to happen to it is a broken screen. If you can pick up a broken screen for a reasonable amount of money, then people are Definitely going to fix them. I'll give you a broken screen for free. (laughs) (laughs) A replacement screen. Yeah, yeah. But most of it you can get parts for, and it's pretty simple screwdriver. It's not these weird, you know, hex screws and all the rest of it. It is very repairable. The previous two got 10 out of 10 from iFixit for repairability. That was the Fairphone 2 and 3. But the previous ones were kind of old and clunky looking, whereas this does look like a modern-ish phone not a high-end one necessarily but nevertheless a decent looking phone so fair play to them i really hope that they can make good on these promises they've done it in the past and uh, we need more of this definitely i'm not sure it's fair to say it's a 200 euro phone although i am likely out of touch but it says it's got a 48 megapixel camera and the selfie camera is 25 megapixels and it'll shoot 4k video with optical image stabilization That sounds like a high-end feature. Are those features really on low-end phones now? Yeah. Wow. The market has stagnated now to the point where they're just having to invent new features. And stuff like that is standard in pretty low-end hardware. In this Verge review, there's a few photos that he's taken with it, and the camera is a bit shit, is the bottom line. Lots of megapixels don't necessarily equate to good photos, unfortunately. 
I mean, they're all right, but compared to a high-end phone, they're just shit. Oh, yeah, the pictures are a bit shit, aren't they? They look great to me. <laughs> <laughs> but this ties in with something that you found, Phelan, and that is uh, 10yearphone.com, the 10-year smartphone. Which, did you think this was real? No, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to tell what some of these Kickstarter things. You just go, uh-huh. Yeah, it's talking about how you're going to get free repairs for 10 years. They'll send parts to your door and all this stuff. And really, this is just a, a fantasy piece, really. And you click on Get the Phone, and it says, Ah, it doesn't exist yet, sorry. But we are sending this letter to the European Commission, so sign the letter. It's wishful thinking, but I think we need pressure to stuff like the EU to make it happen, at least for those of you who can benefit from it, Phelan. Yes, I will. I might buy four <laughs> not give them to either of you. Well, you won't be able to send it here, will you, unfortunately? No, battery. But the battery would be removable, but you'll be so scavenging for rarest materials over there that you exactly. it'll yeah. never get through anyway. It'll need to be wound up if we're going to use it. <laughs> the one laptop child. <laughs> you'll be using those as phones. It is a noble cause. The chap in the video for it is clearly quite young. And uh, it's all a bit um, silly, but it is good to see younger people not just accepting the bullshit of you've got to buy a new phone every two years, otherwise it's just going to be totally obsolete. I don't know where everyone gets the money from, but from my experience, all my daughter's friends have iPhones. Yeah. I mean, I know they're all on contract or their parents are, but it's still crazy that that's acceptable for 13 or 14 year olds. Well, yeah, but if you don't have an iPhone, then you're sad, or whatever the word for it these days <laughs> is. You've got to have an iPhone. Like, you you send a message, and it's the green tick or blue tick, I don't know, yeah. the, the wrong one. Oh, well, you're just an Android pleb then. Yeah, she doesn't, for reference. I think she's quite happy to have an Android phone. Right. It's like not having the right pogs or whatever back in our days. <laughs> Cabbage patch kids. <laughs> when I was that age, it was marbles and stuff, but uh, funny how times change, eh? Okay, this episode is sponsored by CrowdSec. Go to crowdsec.net. CrowdSec is a free and open source and collaborative Linux security solution designed to protect your servers, containers, services, apps, VMs, and more. Imagine a Ferrari losing a Formula One race to a 40-year-old Pinto with a broken headlight and two flat tires. That pretty much describes the asymmetrical cybersecurity industry. Money never solved the hacking problem. A new approach is needed, and CrowdSec wants to rebalance the odds and make security available to all for free. CrowdSec analyzes visitors' behavior and deals with malicious traffic. It offers an adapted response to credential stuffing, port scans, password brute forcing, and much more. Once an aggressive IP is identified, it's also shared across all users to ensure everyone's protection. So, if you want to join the community and protect your IT assets, visit crowdsec.net. That's crowdsec.net. Right, well, I suppose it's time to move on to Bash Mozilla time for a change. (sighs) You keep making these stories up, don't you, Joe? Yeah, I keep writing them, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay, so this time, Firefox's address bar now has ads, but you can disable them, is the headline. Thankfully, this is only in the US for now, so I couldn't replicate it. But in the suggested stuff, when you start typing, you're going to get ads now. You're supposed to have to opt into it, but there have been reports of people automatically being opted into it and having to opt out, which is not good. Let's give 
Mozilla the benefit of the doubt and say that is either a bug or people didn't realize they'd clicked the big fucking button that said it was going to happen. But either way, it's not the greatest look for Mozilla to be doing this, is it? No, and I just don't think it's sustainable. If they're looking for a way of untethering themselves from Google's cash, um, I don't think this is going to be it because it would need to be a lot more aggressive. I don't like the the way that it's hidden away in a support page and the language that they use. Um, we only work with our partners that meet our privacy standards. Um, I understand that they've got to try and find some revenue streams and gain some kind of independence. But it just just feels like the wrong way to go for such an important project. Like we often say, and I think Firefox is brilliant and I still use it. But yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Well, we also got news that they had released a new version of Firefox Focus and they've improved Firefox on Android as well. So they are doing good stuff, but it's, it's almost like, you know, one step forwards, a couple of steps back for them. Yeah, and something that I don't think we talked about, but a few months ago, they stopped supporting the Amazon uh, show devices. So it used to be that you could either use Silk, which is Amazon's own kind of blink fork, or Firefox. And at least you could use Firefox on those evil devices, but for whatever reason, they withdrew that. And that's precisely the kind of thing, I think, along with the Android versions and maybe the, the Fire TV versions, they should be getting out there and being an alternative when, when there is no other alternative. I think it's really disappointing. I mean, the only thing is, the only saving grace is they can't be worse than Chrome if they tried. So, I mean, they've only got the added advantage that the people they're competing with are so much worse than them that, you know, things like this can kind of somewhat be looked at in a different frame of mind. But it's still really mind-boggling how they can't get this right. Like, just be the privacy-protecting browser. Just just do that. Then it, does it answer the question, yes or no? Then if it says no, then don't fucking do it. Like, it's a it's a fairly simple flowchart. Yeah. This is their, their opportunity to find that gap in the market. Now, it doesn't pay very well, obviously, but th- this is their opportunity, and they keep making mistakes like this. When Ubuntu added search results to the dash, there was enormous uproar. It was in all the tech press. Everybody had an opinion about it. And surely there are people at Firefox now who remember that happening and the outcome of that decision and would have said, I don't think this is a great idea, but they did it anyway. I know that software development's expensive and I know that you need lots and lots of developers, but Mozilla has sat on hundreds of millions of dollars. I think just last year it got 338 million in revenue in a revenue spike from its Yahoo contract. I don't understand why that can't fund enough developers or engineering time in perpetuity, in effect. And that's how they should be kind of planning this. Maybe that's naive of me to say so. But I feel like that's what the project should be doing. It should be scoping itself to provide this privacy-focused browser kind of forever on the money that they've got off the interest or whatever they happen to do. Put it into Bitcoin. I don't care. Yeah, buy Dogecoin with it. But you're right. They should thin the herd a little bit which is not a nice thing to have to do and you two lived through that with canonical to some extent a thinning of the herd and sometimes it's got to be done in business and mozilla is clearly too bloated with too much bureaucracy too many managers too many initiatives that aren't the core product and we're going to get shit for this again we go oh they're bashing mozilla again but you know you, you feel like just grabbing this abstract concept known as Mozilla 
by the scruff of the neck and saying, just fucking sort yourselves out. Like, you're our only fucking hope here. If I still go back to when I used, what was it, Phoenix, I think it was called initially or something. Yeah. Um, And then it was Fire... It wasn't Firefox. There was some other name that clashed with a database or something, then they had to change that again. That was the browser to have back then. And I don't understand how they've got to this point now where they're just so clueless that they, they can't even do simple things. And wasn't Phoenix just the result of two developers hacking on the old Netscape code? Yeah, they just took out all the crap that they didn't want. And I said, well, do you know what? This browser doesn't need an email client is what it doesn't need. (laughs) Well, I think times were simpler then, and web standards were a fucking lot simpler then. And you didn't have Google pushing Chrome for 10 or 15 years. Okay, well, then they should make Gecko be more community-based web engine and then they could get other people on other open source side of things to help out with it rather than this monoculture that we're growing right now i think that's a bit naive because it's so complicated and so esoteric there are very few people who can work on a browser engine now because it's essentially an operating system but i don't know i think that's exactly the type of people you get to work for these types of things because it's sort of the the same type of people that work on compilers like you know gcc people or whatever that these are the type of people that should be working. You give them a decent wage, they get paid by, I don't know, the Mozilla Foundation, Linux Foundation, whoever, and then they just plod away at that thing and just batter away till it's always on time. Like, Well, yeah, you're right. I think those kind of people are very, very expensive, but they're not 300 fucking million dollars expensive, are they? They should give me the money. I'll sort all the problems out for them. <laughs> I'll hire a few <laughs> developers and be grand. Jesus Christ. Yeah. There's a lot of craft, though, isn't there? Organizational craft there that needs to be thinned out and some difficult decisions have to be made. It's quite clear to me what the way forward is, and it does not look good because they've grown to this huge organization, this huge, essentially big tech-sized company, and they're just fucking failing. They need to clear out a lot of the management, scale massively down, bank a load of the money that they've got, and fucking sort themselves out. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash Linux. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash Linux. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to latenightlinux.com slash support if you want to join those people. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. Now, that ad-free RSS feed now includes three shows, remember. That is this show, also Late Night Linux Extra, and Linux After Dark. Now, it's been brought to my attention that I didn't properly explain what Linux After Dark is. It is essentially a brother show to this. 
Imagine this show, but with younger people. <laughs> I don't like the cut of their jib, and they're standing on my grass. <laughs> Get the fuck off. Imagine people who are slightly less jaded than us lot. I'm there, so I'm there to be the jaded one rather than the optimistic one. So imagine that. But linuxafterdark.net, check it out. It's every two weeks for now. We'll see how it goes. There'll be an episode coming this Friday if you're listening when this is released. Also, I just wanted to mention about Telegram. So we do have a Telegram group. We don't talk about it very often. And we have Twitter and we did have a Facebook group, but I've just abandoned that because fuck Facebook. But the bottom line is, if you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then email is the way to do it because that's just the easiest way for me to organize it. So that is show at latenightlinux.com. By all means, we can talk in Telegram and you can at me there and on Twitter, and I may see it, I may reply, I don't know, and you know, you can add the, all of us, but if you want to get into the feedback segment or suggest stuff for the show, send it to the email, please. It's just way easier on me. All right, I think we have to talk about the way forward machine. This is a publicity stunt, essentially, from the Internet Archive. The Wayback Machine has been around for 25 years, so to celebrate that slash draw up a bit of publicity, they've made the way forward machine where you put in your URL and then it shows you what it's going to be like that website in 2046. And it's just a horrendous dystopian nightmare. When I first looked at this, I thought, oh yeah, good joke. But then I started thinking about it a bit more. And I think that reality is that we are going to see censorship. We are going to see this sort of um, tiered internet where if you're on some sort of premium plan, then you're allowed to access content, whereas if you're on the basic one, you're not. Um, that everything is going to be JavaScript up the wazoo, and you're not going to be able to browse something without clicking about five or six different acknowledgements and accepting terms and conditions and so on and so on. And I think they're right. I think that the web is fundamentally broken now. It's only going to get worse. And I hope that either the whole thing burns down or it gets replaced by something a bit nicer. Keep it light, keep it light. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it will be replaced. I don't think the web as we know it will be the same. If you look at what it was like 25 years ago, it is very, very different now. Back then, it was mostly just static pages, whereas now it's completely interactive JavaScript and all sorts of web frameworks and stuff. It is a very different place. And so to try and predict what it's going to be like in another 25 years is a bit of a fool's errand, isn't it? Technologically, at least. Who knows? Maybe Flash will be back. <laughs> yeah, what have we actually gained from it? I had a website in 1996 actually running off HTTPD on my Amiga that's picked up oh, on the web archive. I won't share it because it's really <laughs> embarrassing. Oh. But really, when I look at it, it's the content. It's the, not my words, but I mean, that's <laughs> what the value was in the internet then. And we still, that's still the best part of the internet today, despite all of the streaming, everything and the social media interaction. And it may really come to a point where people have just had enough. And um, maybe if there is an easy, easy option where you can say, I don't want any of that. I just want an internet of information. Maybe more people will use it. I disagree. I think that some great things have come. Obviously, some bad things as well. But look at the technology that we're using for our show docs. That would have been just ridiculous 25 years ago. To have a doc that we can all view at the same time and edit at the same time. And yes, we're using proprietary Google Docs for this, but there are some free software alternatives that are almost as good that you can self-host and whatnot. And 
we wouldn't have had any of that back then. And who knows mm. what good things might come in another 25 years. But how much RAM is Google Docs taking up? I'm sure we could have come up with a, you know, a Vim plugin that would work for all of us to telnet into and just make our own notes there. I think, though, the problem is that with every good sort of technology gets developed, it's all the shite that gets strapped onto the side of it, like all the monitoring, all the intrusion on privacy, the disgusting way that Facebook has warped democracies around the world. Like, there are so many bad things for, you know, being able to edit a document all at the same time. Like, I think we could have all coped with just emailing it to each other if the other alternative flip of that coin was to not have democracy ruined. And as for RAM, I'm only using five gigs total at the moment. And I've got, (laughs) yeah, but I've got Audacity, Mumble and Firefox running. How much memory did your Amstrad PC have? I think what I'm saying is that I don't trust the Googles of the world to implement something to my benefit, ultimately. And it probably could be done a lot more efficiently. And we don't have any control over how uh, we don't have any way of pushing back to make sure that those things are done to the best of our advantage. But again, just because the mainstream bits of the web are going to be shit doesn't mean that people will just put up with it. You're assuming that people would be allowed to have their own stuff up there. There might have to be a thing where, oh, you have to sign the contributor to the internet agreement, blah, 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 and you're only allowed that if you agree to all of these things. So then there'll just be localized mesh networks that will spring up. Mm. You can't stop people innovating. And if you look at what the internet is to most people, I suppose most people between the age of 30 and 70, it's fucking Facebook still. And they just lost their shit when it went down for six hours the other day, especially with WhatsApp and Instagram as well. It was just like they didn't know what the fuck to do, whereas the rest of us were just like, oh, how's it? Oh, right, well, just use (laughs) text then instead of WhatsApp. And if the web and the internet does get as bad as they are predicting here, There are too many clever people in the technological space to allow that to become the only way. And maybe we won't be able to talk to each other halfway around the world freely anymore, free as in freedom. Maybe it will become hyper-localized and I'll only be able to talk to people in my neighborhood via this mesh network or whatever. But there will still be positive sides to technology in 25 years. I I just, I can't bear to think of the alternative. That's going right back to the 80s and FidoNet across bulletin boards. Well, what's old is new again. <laughs> I know what you're saying, and I agree with you that technology will find a way. You're right, and that's quite exciting because that's how it kind of started. And yeah, okay, I accept that hopefully te- it's exciting that things will get so bad that we <laughs> technology will find a way, and I'll look forward to it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. 
So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Let's do a quick KDE corner then. And the first is a job posting. Yeah, it is. Um, so KDE are obviously using various different types of hardware. They have a role available. It's a 20 hour per week role. And they want to get as many people applying for this as they can. And it's a good understanding of hardware and ecosystems. And it's really to try and test out what, how KDE works on various different platforms to make sure it's compatible with all of them. And going forward, they have a, a good, strong uh, presence. Also, it's KDE's 25th birthday. Yeah, that's crazy. 25 years of the cool desktop environment. Shh. Stop. <laughs> that that was a it was a rough time for everybody back then. <laughs> yeah, and so there are some parties around Europe. There are, yeah. Uh, so some people are trying to meet up. Um, it kind of depends on where you are as to whether you can meet up. Uh, kind of COVID has probably put a dampener in a lot of places these days. Um, so yeah, there, there's a page there, and there's actually you can actually sign up if you have a group of people that want to start one or you want to do join one of the ones that are already there uh currently in berlin barcelona malaga and valencia so a lot of spanish representation there yeah tiktok though because it's uh the 14th of october is the actual birthday which is the end of this week as we record now yeah that's right and a, a few of these are on the 16th so you, you might have a couple extra days but yeah uh get to it i guess well you've got a whole year to celebrate haven't you it's 25 years it's a big milestone all right, um, how Gwenview got its name? Yeah, if there's one way for me to get lost in the errors, I had to turn off the middle panel back in the day on Amarok because band history used to come up. And that was forever for me to get lost reading through this while listening to music. I whittled hours away, not doing my projects for, for work. <laughs> but I do like a bit of history on a project. And this one is that Gwenview started off potentially as a GTK app. Oh. was named after part of his girlfriend who may have become his wife i'm not 100 sure uh but it's a good read and uh how he, he switched over to qt because a guy that had been working previously on the gnome uh library uh ran away scared from it and he went geez okay if he's already been spending this amount of time working on it and uh has decided to change then uh, maybe i should do that too so yeah name stuck and uh it's been going for quite some time so kind of cool so that's why it's not Quenview with a K. Indeed. <laughs> and uh, so calendar dev blogs, 17 and 18. Yeah, there is a whole lot of features of this. It's starting to get close to review time for it. So there's, a, I mean, yes, it's a calendar app. How excited about a calendar app can you get? But I think it's a, it's a quite a pretty piece of software. And the devlog has been really good to follow through of the various aspects of development for it that they've been doing, how it's been going through. And it's nice to see that some of that stuff still actually counts, you know, email calendaring. I mean, it's often sniffed about, but, you know, still very vital work. Right. And uh, Krita 5.0 Beta 2 is out. But the most interesting bit is that in the Mac and Windows app stores, it's going to get a fairly significant price bump. Yeah, now I don't know what that would compare to for some of the other graphics applications that you can apply, but I think Krita is still considered to be fairly decent in terms of feature set. And the Windows version is going up to about $20, 20 euros. 
and the Mac one is going to 25 because they say it's it's roughly actually cost more to do work on the Mac. Well, yeah, and people with the Mac have got more money, haven't they? Well, I mean, there is that. We should gouge them while we still can. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's interesting to see. I mean, I don't, I've tried to look for numbers to see how the, if they've got any numbers for how many people have got it on the various Steam and the Windows App Store and stuff. But they've always been a bit shady on whether the details are there, but maybe I've just been bad at finding them. But it'd definitely be interesting to find out from the project how many are buying it. Yeah, and they do talk about how you've got to pay 99 euros a year just to be a fucking Apple developer. So uh, I think it's fair enough that they charge a bit more for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And if you compare it to some of the other applications, I'm sure it's fairly reasonable price-wise still. Yeah, and you can still go and download it for free from the website, can't you? It's only in the stores specifically if people want to buy it from there. So it's it's not like you, you're forced to. It's, it's almost a voluntary thing. Yeah, and I mean, for any Linux distribution, it's going to be bundled along with your standard distro anyway. So yeah, it's still free for everybody who cares. Right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll be talking about Regolith and lots of other stuff as well. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phantom. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.